This is from Matthew 5, 21 to 32. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly when your adversary is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and thank you for that reading, Emily. thought it would be good to have somebody read that one with a gentle voice because um, there's a lot in there. Um, the kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly. So the Sermon on the Mount so far has had us called as blessed ones. Um, and blessed in a, in a weird way that sort of uh, names blessings in which we don't typically see them. And then, it, and then it moved to sort of calling and naming the community as sort of essential for the world, is that they are salt and light in the world, that they are a city on a hill, and that this community of disciples and believers has been brought out in this way. And, and as we've been trying to say, that this is those gathered near Jesus who are living these values, who are called to live and be in this sort of way. So we had, we had good news, and we had greater news that's also a challenge. And then last week, Jesus talked about how he's going to be in continuity with what came before that he comes to fulfill the law and the prophets, but not to abolish them. He comes to sort of um, make their meaning manifest to us in a different way. And we talked about all the things that sort of go into that. And so, so far we've titled the series Instructions for Building a House, and, and so far there haven't been a whole lot of instructions yet. Um, but today we get into sort of the instructions, and they're, they're rather intense in form. One of the things that, that I found this week as I studied and read 
is when you read these things abstractly as a as a good Christian boy as I was or as a not Christian boy as I all good Christian boy as I also was um, depended on the day um, was that you think that the rest of the church thinks that these things perhaps are easy that this is sort of made manifest and and this is where uh, this passage. Um, the, that we've this my spin on a quote from the theologian Karl Barth is that we ought to live this ethic. Um, uh, we are human, so we can't live it perfectly, and we ought to recognize, therefore, both our obligation and our inability, and by that very recognition, give glory to God. Um, is that these are hard teachings. Now, one of the benefits I had in reading way too many commentaries as I do this week is almost everybody said this is hard, and it was an awakening to me. And 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 I often think. You, all, you guys are all more mature than I am sometimes, that maybe you all got this understanding much earlier than I did. But almost everybody from the ancients to the moderns who comment, particularly on these two passages, says, is this a realistic teaching? Is this just to make manifest the ways in which we fall short? Is Jesus setting us up for an impossible task? Is our battle with anger and lust capable of being one. Now, the first thing I would say to that, that, that first comes as a, a freshness of goodness because it means that everybody else, when they're being honest, which apparently is the few and the far between commentary writers of all things, when they're being honest is they're expressing that this is hard. It's a quote I like to use that, that the gospel comes with... with um, neither just demand or not just comfort, but comforting demand. That there's this, there's this word of law and grace that sort of fuses into unity. So the first is, you know, you read that and you're like, it's good that other people accept the struggle here, the depths here. But then the second thing is, then what are we to do with this? This is why we talked about the tradition at times can take these passages to mean it's hopeless and throw ourselves on Jesus Christ all the more in his grace. It's hard to push back on that one because you really don't want to say, let's not throw ourselves on Jesus Christ in all his grace. Um, I think these commands and all the commands in, in the Sermon on the Mount and particularly in the New Testament drive us to going to the one who embodied and lived them for our sake, finding ourselves and our rest in him. But I think they are also meant to be lived in some way. I don't think Jesus just, um, there's a 1950s dubbed with modern language uh, Jesus cartoon that I'll use when it perfectly fits a sermon someday. But he walks upon the people and he goes, oh, look at all these miserable sinners. Um, and then he gets up to give the Sermon on the Mount and he says, it is hopeless. Turn before you burn. And then he sits back down. Um, is that what Jesus, and that's, that's sort of in that other sense of, of reading this passage, Jesus is kind of like that. He gets, he comes and he says, look at all these poor, miserable sinners, and, and, and that he sets us up in a hopelessness situation. And when you see it played out over a 1950s Jesus movie, it becomes all more apparent that there must be more to it than this. That God must be inviting us in to uh, what Dallas Willard calls the eternal kind of life now that he's not just setting us up for failure, but bringing us to something else. 
Now, one of the things I would say about today's sermon is that it's been helpfully formed by two psychologists I listen to a lot. One is Jordan Peterson, and the other was the president of my seminary, Dan Allender. And Dan, um, when he talks about this passage, sometimes it's better to put these quotes on other people's lips. Is he says that, that he says what we come to find is that we are murderers and adulterers, that we are whores and people who have vindicated and murdered, and that's what these passages first call us to the realization of. You've been blessed, you've been called out as salt and light, and now here you are um, being told, you think you've been doing okay, I haven't murdered anybody recently, and said that if you have anger or wrath for someone, you've committed murder, or if you have restored yourself to lust, that you found yourself um, in adultery, and that if you've, you've sort of pushed these patterns of, of separation, of non-fidelity to our words and divorce, that you, you've made other people victims of adultery as well, that, that this is sort of, I mean, that when you almost become, um, there's a better word than pimp, what's the classical word? Um, I grew up with rap culture. Pimp, we don't think, is always a negative thing. Um, what's the, the person who runs the brothel, the whorehouse? What's, is there another name, or am I just messed up here? Okay, well, that doesn't sound so bad either. So I guess you become the person who, who sort of is making this thing manifest for other people. You're not just dragging yourself into it. You're dragging other people into it. I should have looked that up before I got up here. <laughs> The second one is that, that, that these, I think, um, teachings, if we are to hear them well, um, the other psychologist brings this up, this, from Carl Jung says that, that our darkest parts touch the depths of hell. And so for us to hear these teachings, I think is the way Jesus is calling them out, is that we, our darkest parts, need to accept that they touch near the depths of hell. We don't see ourselves in the seriousness in which this is being called forth. And as uh, Kara read for us, these two commandments are what Jesus is riffing on from the Ten Commandments. They appear elsewhere in the Old Testament as well, is that he's sort of taking these things and making them deeper. He's sort of bringing them out to a fuller place. This is where he says when he's come not to abolish it, but to fill the wall, the hard part about stopping that sermon is we didn't get to, I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you, that, that how is he going to do that? And how he's going to do that is, is particularly with these two commands, he's, he's interesting because he takes the act of what it is, murder and adultery, and goes to the emotion, anger and contempt and lust, and says, that if you're going to weed yourself out of these things, you need to get deeper into yourself. So it's one thing to stop and say, um, sometimes when you meet non-Christians, they're like, I'm a good person, I haven't murdered anyone. And it's like, well, I got bad news for you. Because if you've hated someone, according to our Lord, uh, uh, you've basically murdered them. So uh, I've never used that as a comeback to that phrase, but that would be interesting to see what they say. Um, um, because we have this way in which we, we sort of think we haven't done these things. And what Jesus is saying is the seeds and the roots of those things have already been laid bare within your soul, that you have these grievous sins sort of within you. And, it, it's, and Jesus has this way of starting with these things that I think 
go deep inside of the human emotion. There's another psychologist, so I guess we've got a third one coming up here, a Jewish one, secular Jewish one, Philip Reef, who talked about how the libido is sort of the way in which Christianity was able to tap into a deeper psychology, that in training um, people into this fidelity of word and space and of not using people, that actually is where the power came from to sort of transform people. And what his book um, is titled, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, and what he says in our modern world as we begin to lose that, it's no shock that Christianity is also fading in its pole and power. And as Christianity tries to navigate those tensions as well, uh, alleviating the call and concern, the more we fall away from the ways in which we get into it. The book of James talks about this as as if our mouths are rudders which control a whole ship. That's another way of thinking about what, what Reef is talking about, is that when Christianity wants to get into people's lives, it wants to say that these things will go deep inside of you. How you speak will be the thing that can turn a whole ship how you look at someone, the words you use to describe. Um, I found myself as I was thinking about this passage this week, we drive Rosie to Carbon. I drive Rosie to Carbondale every morning for school. And the amount of times in which I utter near the exact same phrases Jesus tells us not to use on my drive um, is shockingly pathetic. Um, and it's one thing to say, well, you know, I'm not going to murder that person. But it's another thing to notice um, how we live with reserves of anger, anger in the modern world. It's a, you see it at checkout lines. You see it in relationships to your own children. You see it when somebody cuts you off. You see it in all these different ways in which, and you see it in other people. Um, and then you often go, oh, that, what a, that ch- escalated quickly. And it's harder for you to name it in yourself, I think, um, that it just goes from zero to 60 so fast. Particularly, I don't know if that's uniquely modern or not, but that we live in a world in which this thing sort of explodes upon us. We have reserves of rage that we can tap into whenever we want. And we just feed them, and we don't deal with them, and we just sort of go about our lives with them in them. And sometimes um, in our wiser moments, we begin to say, there's something else going on with that person. I'm sure, David, you work in security at the airport. You see, they can't be responding to what you just said to them. They're responding to something else in their lives. When I worked at coffee, at, uh, serving coffee on the L station in Chicago at 4.30 in the morning, that our, our manager would always come to us and say, Matt, don't take that personally, but that person it must be going through something else to get that fired up that you got them a small 12-ounce instead of a 16-ounce um, dark coffee. Um, that, that There's this ways in which we don't even know the depths into which we live with these things. And so what I want to do, um, I think, is walk through each of the ones that Jesus calls out for us. Uh, the first is, is divorce. Now, in both... In two or three of these, these are classically called the antitheses, um, what Jesus is doing here, which is weird because if they were antitheses, it would be like, uh, you have heard it said, don't murder. I say, go kill everyone. Like, that would be antithetical. Um, he's, he's more pushing them deeper. So it's probably not the best term for, for this section of scripture. Um, but what Jesus is doing is entering into conversations that are happening at the time. I've tried to make it clear that Judaism is also, um, as Christianity is emerging in the world, 
world as a form of Judaism, however we want to talk about that, is having these same conversations. So in Deuteronomy, um, I believe it's 24, I should know this, we just finished 12 weeks on it, but regardless, uh, there's this allowance for divorce. And, and there's this weird phrase, if, if it's for something necessary, um, can't remember the exact phrase, but, but in some sense, there were rabbis who interpreted that at the time of Jesus to say that if the wife does anything shameful, like burn your toast, you can give her a certificate of divorce. Um, and that that was legal and that was allowed by the book of Deuteronomy. There were other rabbis who said, no, it means like um, something more shameful. Um, and then there were other rabbis who took it to the, to the most shameful of acts too. And this is, this is sort of what Jesus enters into with this teaching on divorce, which this one, as one of the six, is sort of an extension of the previous one on lust. But what, what he is saying is, is Jesus is taking the side of sort of the um, rabbis that want to extend this to saying, no, there must be some cause. There's not just casting about marriages for anything you might deem as shameful to your ego. Um, and so Jesus is, is entering into this conversation, taking up that space. You have heard it said that anyone who divorces her life must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Later in the book of Matthew, Jesus too will also raise up marriage too to this heightened level in which, in which that is the proper place for these things. It, and it, he raises it up so much so that the disciples ask, who should even get married then? Um, which is an odd thing. And then Jesus, Jesus sees a world beyond sexuality too at that moment. Um, in which we're sort of the raised ones like angels. But one of the things that we've talked about with divorce here, and this quote from Wendell Berry, is that he talks about our age, that this is an age of divorce. Things that belong together have been taken apart. And you can't put it all back together again. What you do is the only thing that you can do. You take the two things that ought to be together and you put them back together. Two things, not all things. That, that we live, I mean, it's not much to say that we live in an age of highly uncontained divorce in the marriage sense. And we also live in a world in which we divorce ourselves from the realities of things often multiplied over and over again. And what Barry suggests is that it's time for us to just put one or two things back together. And I think the reason why I wanted to go to this quote is because I think in our world, lust and murder stem to this too, is that this hatred and, 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 and uh, lust, uh, adultery, is really about this age of divorce as well. That, that you... Um, merely by participating in the, the most mo moderate forms of our modern economy are bombarded with lustful images of desirous images. By, by, by participating in the most uh, weak forms of our, our, our economy, even like this is to say that even if you just barely shopped at all, you would be involved in this exchange of sort of hatred and contempt and, and, and lust and violence just off the top of it. Um, and, and the best place to hap, perhaps to think about this is the checkout line at the grocery store. If you ever look at the magazines, which 
like don't, but do, like um, you're bombarded with both lust and, and other sort of news items that are meant to raise within you, um, you fool. Um, one particular one that's the funny thing about it is that's what we say about people who buy the National Enquirer. Um, you fool. Like it's, it's a perfect spot in which we're brought into this sort of um, spot in the economy in which things have been taken apart. Um, you're there to buy, uh, it was hard, I was going to say chicken wings, which is a weird way in which we also live in an age of divorce because you're not actually buying a whole chicken, you're just buying the wings, which raises the question of what happens to the rest of it. Um, Barry would certainly be uh, aware of that point in his logic here. But to say that you're just merely trying to provide for your family in some ways and you're brought into these things, um, it's where it all begins. We'll do lust next because I think um, sex sells. So I'm going to bring you back to attention. No. Um, uh, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. This is a hard uh, teaching. Anybody who looks at a woman commits adult with with lust commits adultery in, with her in her heart. And I think as Jesus is giving this um, not new law, but this new moral expert exhortation, it's um, important to remember that we live in a lustful society. We live in a carnivorous society because what are we all called, according to most of the world? Consumers. We are consumers. And so part of what we're being trained to do continually is to look at the world in a way in which we lust after things. If you have a smartphone, you notice uh, there's this, the, if you're, one, somebody here is a conspiracy theorist who believes all I was doing was talking about Oreos and then I started getting ads for Oreos on my phone. Kevin and Emily are those conspiracy theorists. Um, uh, uh, might be true, but the point is, is that we're already brought into that in so many different ways. And, and one of the ways I, I like to think about this one to expand it beyond just of what the lust of looking at some other person to consume them is that if, if you had walked into church and somebody um, was sitting there reading a Playboy, we would all go, that is a poor choice. Um, and yet, it, if you've looked at... Um, Cosmo to Glamour to Mary Claire to Red Book, which I think are graded on ages for women, um, Cosmo being the youngest, or Teen Vogue probably, um, they're all sort of the same sort of lust. To say that I read those things for the articles is about as naive as saying I read Playboy for the articles. Is that they're built to make you consume. And they're not only built to make you consume, they're built to make you resentful of something you already have. That kitchen is better than my kitchen. That relationship, uh, 20, 20 ways to have a better date night. Well, my husband would never do those date nights with me. They're built into this way in which we begin to, to sort of change our whole economy of thinking. Now, before we... I don't want to move on from that one necessarily, but I do want to say that I wanted to have a bottle of water up here. I don't. Does anybody have a bottled water? We're all good granola folks. They're refillable as I look around. Um, uh, bottled water is an $8 billion industry. So if you think of Fiji, um, Aquafina, 
um, uh, Dasani, everybody has their favorite brand. Um, pornography itself is also an $8 billion industry. Um, and so we don't often um, talk about the dangers and troubles of pornography at the Fiance Church, but luckily the state of Utah has, has considered it an epidemic um, and are doing things to sort of stem the tide on that. And it's, it's not a male issue, it's not a female issue, it's uh, also deeply tied into shame and past culture for people. Um, there is uh, a, the other psychologist, Dan, from my seminary. The, our class on sexuality was called Sexual Disorders, and some well-meaning students said, well, that's messed up. We should have sexual wholeness. And he pointed out that who in this world has not been disorderly formed into sexuality? Um, Dan is somebody you'd love to go see speak but not have as your pastor. Um, who hasn't done that? And so on the back of the bulletin, below the quote, is um, uh, a web page, Covenant Eyes. Uh, Covenant Eyes is screen accountability software, um, and it's, they have a free month. Um, and so if you're like, I don't want to confess that I might need help for this, you can just say, Pastor Matt said they had a free month. I want to see what you look at all day on your screens, and you can see what I look at all day on my screens, and we'll cancel and save the $15. But you might find... Um, that there's actually more there than not. Um, uh, and so that's my one plug. Uh, you don't have to use that. There are other screen war uh, accountability software things. Uh, that's one of them. But there are ways in which we can be a community in which we help one another through this. Um, if you need an accountability partner, you don't want to be your pastor or mother or whatever, or, or spouse or whatever, you can sign me up. Um, and I do my best to be a non-judgmental person through those things. But I think it's one of those things, this is an $8 billion industry. That's half of the NFL. Um, it's something deep within our world. There's, when I was, uh, looked this up a long time ago, at, at one college they tried to do a study of young men um, uh, on their pornography use, and they needed a control group that didn't use pornography at all, and they couldn't get enough to make the control group. So they just put down like once a month as a category to get it. So it is, it is deep within our world. It is um, not a simple thing to talk about or solve or bring to light, and yet it is one in which the church needs to own what Jesus tells us is that to bring this lust into our lives is to commit adultery with people. That we are ones bound to being adulterous in ways beyond our control. Um, and this is, uh, like I said, it's, it's from television ads, it's to pornography, it's to whatever you want to pick on it. Um, we just live in a society that is tainted by lust so that we will consume and consume and consume. It is a Dietrich Bonhoeffer who about this passage who said that you can't see God through the lustful eye, and that is perhaps one of the greatest challenges, is that when you see people as objects to be consumed upon, um, if you see things divorced from their context in which they're objects to be consumed upon, you can't see God in that way. When we become at our worst moments just base consumers 
we can't see and come to God. And so Jesus' advice here is that if, you, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your, than your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Sharp and stark advice here. Where's my copy of, um, of uh, The Cost of Discipleship? Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes about this. At, at this point, we, must we not decisively face the question whether Jesus intended his command to be taken literally or merely figuratively? Must not the whole life depend on a clear answer to this question? Must not the disciples' attitude already determine the answer? Our own will advises us to flee from this decision, which appears to be so deadly serious. But the question itself is wrong and evil. It cannot be answered. We cannot answer whether Jesus means this literally or not. If we were to say, of course, that the command is meant to be, not meant to be taken literally, then we would have already dodged the seriousness of the command. He doesn't mean any of that. We've already dodged the seriousness of the command. But if we were to say, of course, it should be taken literally, this would only show that Christian existence is absurd on principle and the command would lose its authority. Well, he totally doesn't mean it. Then what else doesn't he totally mean? Does he not mean the command not to do this? It is precisely the fact that for us, the basic question is not answered that binds us completely to Jesus' command. Neither option offers us an escape. We are trapped and we must obey. Jesus does not force his disciple into an inhuman constraint. He does not forbid them to look, but he guides his disciples to look to himself, knowing that the disciples' view will remain pure even when they look at a woman. In this way, he does not impose on his disciples an unbearable yoke of the law, but mercifully helps them out by the way of the gospel. Jesus invites us into this passage and, and to see the depth. Some early Christian commentators said that he talks about hell here to talk us to get out of it. Um, don't throw your whole body into hell is advice to move yourself out of hell. That God is here to rescue us. And so the step he advises for us is it's better to lose these things than to toss our whole body into hell. I, I have never seen the movie Fireproof with Kirk Cameron because I'm snobby. Um, but from what I understand, that there's a... a the, the, the man in the movie is, is addicted to pornography, and it, what it takes is one day for the computer to be gone and for flowers to be there for his wife. That in some way he had to just say, email is not for me. Um, that we have to move. It's better to lose Instagram and social media, HBO Max, Netflix, than for the whole body to be cast into hell. It's better for us to consider these things. And I think there's a way in which, in the modern world, I think it would be better for us to lose our pride. Um, it'd be better for us to lose our, our picturesqueness. It'd be better for us to lose that we are immune to these things than it would be to lose ourselves to hell. And the church is perhaps one of the best places where we hide behind how things are good. This is why Jesus can begin with his disciples. 
Commands that touch the immediacy of life. Anger. You have heard it said long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders is subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be judgment again. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you will fool will be in dangers of the fire of hell. Jesus calls out the language we use for others. If you're married or have kids and you probe, and this is why I said you take these things down to hell, when, when you say you'll never be like that, or you begin to think that, that your kids or these things are a disappointment, you begin to move from these places of, of, of taking on the role of a judge that is like a murderer or sentencing to death. You become much more than that. There's the, the, the way in which these two words work is one, they think, express sort of a moral contempt. Um, you are morally bankrupt. You are morally this way. You are flawed in that way. And you say these things, and what happens, Jesus says, is that you become a murderer in that. And contempt, I mean, when you feel contempt from someone um, in your lowest moments, it, it feels as if you're being stabbed. It's not a pleasant experience. Mental contempt. Um, this is one that I see probably more than I should in myself, but easier to see in others, is that those people, I want to talk about uh, defiance politics. Perhaps these two commands moving into election season uh, don't look at people as merely um, fools, or, or morally bankrupt is perhaps a good place to start. Because when we do that, and particularly in politics, we begin, our goal is to dehumanize all these people we don't know. It's a mass of people who are going to vote this way or that way, and they're fools. There's a whole group of people who believe X, and they, I hold them in contempt. For us, it is perhaps seriously to take these things during this time, to see how these things reach deep into our soul. In the book of Genesis, uh, after Cain, or before Cain kills Abel, God says that sin is crouching at your door. The book of James talks about anger. Maybe it's not James. Um, as, as if you, you, you can be angry, but don't let the sun go down on it reconcile that the command not to be angry at all we this is one has a long tradition of being carved out like well you can be angry at injustice you can do this and and perhaps that might be a good thing but but we're pretty poor judges on like that's injustice like because we quickly move from being angry at the injustice to being angry at the person who did the, the thing. And this is more in our immediate context, I think. But we move quickly from these things to that. Um, perhaps we should be angry at injustice, but we have to be careful because we're bad judges of those things. And so what happens, Jesus says, is that while you're walking on the way, settle quickly matters with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're sitting together or on the way. Your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you'll be thrown in prison. Truly, I'll tell you, you will not get out until you paid the last penny. Uh, 
weird side note. Truly, I tell you, will not get out until you've paid the last penalty as a, as a proof text for purgatory, um, which makes you think about the ways in which they took this passage, though, is that if you live this way, you will go to a place in which you will be judged until that is paid out. As Protestant Christians, we don't believe in purgatory, but I can tell you that's an interesting way to think about this way in which we want to hold on to these things. And what I would say is that life for us is lived sitting down and on the road. We have this time, is what this passage says, in which we are moving along in life, in which we go um, and we have time to seek reconciliation. We have time to forgive along the path. We have time to make the changes necessary so that when we get to the court, when we get to the end, when we get to the final um, judgment of things, we have done what we can to sow peace along the roads of life. To not always come out on top, to not always be the victor, but to find ourselves um, settled into who God is. Later in the sermon, we'll pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. To move out of these reserves of anger, to move away from being murderers and consumers all the time is perhaps the call of our lives through these passages. Now, one last thing. This has gone way too long. Uh, On the back of the bulletin, above Covenant Eyes, One must think like a hero to behave merely like a decent human being. I came to this in my study this week, and what I realized is that if you read um, literature from the certain eras, what what they the people who actively become the good people in the novel are the people who are over dramatic about everything. Um, there's two people. One, one is sort of the innocent fool, and that's a disposition that I don't think you can cultivate. If you're that way, congrats. Um, but if you're not that way, um, there's the seriousness which I fail to bring to life very often. To conceive of yourself as in this battle with murder in the language you use against others. To conceive of your gaze as a battle with Um, becoming an adulterer is a way in which we can take ourselves more seriously than we should. And in that way, I I don't agree with the end of this this quote, behave like merely a decent human being. Uh, Behave like a Christian. So often it's just this, it's just that. We'll get to that with oaths probably and other passages as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. But so much we do is to deflate ourselves of taking ourselves seriously. There's, there's a longer story here that I meant to read today that I don't think we have time for. But even, um, it's the story of a young woman who meets Roger Scruton who died last year. He was an English sort of thinker. Um, and he... Uh, meets a young woman who immediately comes to him and confesses that I'm attracted to you. And here's the deal is I have to confess that because I've been in a war with lust and adultery my whole life. And they begin a relationship in which she is resolute in her desire to stay away from that. She doesn't give in. Um, And yet she works through her stuff and she says, uh, he's not a Christian at this point, that I'm going to bring you to God. And he says, surely there is no hope of that. He doesn't come a Christian in this moment with her, but, but this sows seeds within him of the radical way, and she took herself and her thoughts seriously. 
and she didn't bury them. And go, well, that's a, just push that down. Um, because we push these things down, and they go deeper and deeper, and they deform us, and deform our lives, and deform our relations to the world. So the point of this passage before we finish is just clearly that, that Christ is the one who lives these things and in being attached to him and, and binding ourselves to him, we become capable of thinking and living and being in this way. We need Jesus to do it. It is Jesus who invites us into this and it is Jesus, um, in, in the divorce one later in Matthew, it is Jesus who says that was allowed because you were hard-hearted. Um, who are we to think that the hard-heartedness doesn't also extend into the church? And yet many teachings will come from the Gospel of Matthew on how we are called to forgive and forgive and forgive and how God is in within forgiveness to us. God is the one who offers his Son for our forgiveness. Let us pray. We have heard it said Keep from these extreme measures. And we thought that was good. But Jesus, you who know us more dearly than we know ourselves, call us to probe the depths with these. Not raised my hand in murder, but my words have been so. My contempt and care for the world has driven that. I have not committed adultery, but my lust remains. God, you are the doctor of our souls. May you graciously perform surgery on us as your people. And may your grace be a source of healing and goodness as we experience the forgiveness for our errors that we only receive from your Son. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.